Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing again. Believe in Broadcasting from Huntington Beach, California, a big L.A. welcome to all our listeners out there in Radio Land. I am Dave Nassani on the Caregiver Dave Radio Show, coming to you live globally from the syndicated all-positive talk radio network, HealthyLife.net, broadcasting in all 50 states and 135 countries, and we have an exciting show planned for you today. Normally, my co-host, Adrian Gruberg from the Caregiver Space from Manhattan is here, but not today. She's at the... Uh, Broadway musical, watching something, and God bless her, she needs a day off. So have fun, Adrian. But today's guest, A&E television star Mona Lisa Johnson, 60 Days in Jail, undercover to help reform the prison system, a caregiver to the incarcerated. She will talk about what it is to be a caregiver to prisoners of hope, a different kind of caregiver and a different kind of show. Mona Lisa experienced losing her daughter to the system of incarceration where she served six years on a 10-year mandatory minimum sentence. That's her daughter. From that experience, she went to jail for 60 days, Mona Lisa, undercover to learn more about what her daughter was experiencing. Thereafter, created an awareness movement to restore empathy and rebuild the family unit. She is still currently caring for her 26-year-old daughter after returning from six years of prison over these last two years. It has been a joyous and painful experience all in one, if you can imagine that. I think caregivers can relate to that. And we're proud to be voted, by the way, number one caregiver podcast of the top 50 on Player FM, as well as the top six best podcasts on caring.com, as well as number three podcasts out of the thousands of caregiver podcasts on Feedspot. And if you go right now to caregiverdave.com and click on the free download tab, you will get some free gifts for you. Don't ever let free gifts go unclaimed. That's what my dad always used to say, and I think he's right. <laughs> but hey, before I introduce Mona Lisa, I want to take this opportunity to thank our last guest, Carletta Cole. And you can watch or listen to that interview and all our interviews on healthylife.net and many of our other great interviews on our membership website, caregiverdave.com. All right, enough of that. Mona Lisa. Let me just sing that. Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa, men have named you. We're so honored wow. to be interviewing a star like you today. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you so much. That was a beautiful rendition. Do it again, oh. Sam. <laughs> You're so like the lady with the mystic smile. Oh. And I can go on and on, but this is your show. <laughs> I like to ask my guests to take a minute or two and just tell us who the heck is Mona Lisa Johnson and why was she put on this earth? How's that for an opening question? Wow, that was no prep needed, right? They say stay ready, <laughs> don't get ready, right? I, I think that, um, you know, I'm a person who I firmly believe was created for a purpose. Um, I don't think that I was just that person that was just created to exist and to just go through life like, you know, um, most people who have, you know, not a lot of things that they need to do or accomplish, but maybe just do the basics of working, raising a family, you know, things like that. I think I was created for something a little different. Um, I was built and made, I think, um, to withstand some massive <laughs> trials and tribulations. Yeah, think. <laughs> I think. And I think uh, that... You know, I am a woman of God and I do believe, you know, that there are uh, multiple ways to get to God. And I also believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. So in all of Amen. that, in all of that, I think that, you know, God uh, anointed me, if you will, or chose me, if you will, to be a person who would care for those who were downtrodden and those who were less than and would be looked at, you know, as uh, castaways. So I think yeah. it was just me, you know, that was chosen for that. I'm, I'm a, I used to be a very strong person. And then I went through, you know, bits and moments where life kind of felt like it was overtaking me and I fell apart. And, you know, I, I found myself, you know, having to pull myself up by my bootstraps and find my own healing. So I've had a lot of, you know, healing journeys. I've, I've brought healing to other people. And I just think as a whole, 
you know, I'm a good person. <laughs> I'm a good person. I And you I look can't... like a strong person. I mean, you are a force to be reckoned with. I mean, uh, we have video, too, for those of you who don't see the video. I'm sorry. But there's there's an aura. There's almost a halo on her because of the way the light is in the room she is in. And, and those of you who have video can see that. But she is she's an amazing, and she's an amazing, strong woman. I mean, I just came from Carnegie Hall where I, I spent the weekend with uh, Martha Stewart. We spoke uh, on the same stage, Carnegie Hall. And she told about her little joint in jail, or as she puts it, Yale, because oh. it just sounds better and it made her feel better going to Yale okay. for five months instead of jail. And she was good. strong when she went in, and she's stronger when she came out, and she's even more famous. And you're you're right in her shoes, even even better, because you have done the same journey. And you've accomplished a lot through what you're doing, and we just can't wait to uh, have you tell us all about it. Well, if I get my so own, um, if I get my own line like Martha Stewart, then I am absolutely I'll be calling myself Mona Martha. You have Martha. no <laughs> idea what Jesus has in store for you, young lady. Amen because to that. Uh, I guarantee you, if you can imagine it, it ain't big enough. So just hang in there, <laughs> That's a fact. and you will uh, you will let him let him show you who you are in Christ, because uh, you are a force to be reckoned with, and you, you ain't seen nothing yet. So let's talk about uh, how did the incarceration happen? I mean, that's a story in and of itself. Go ahead. Well, my daughter was actually um, in, well, she was an early graduate from high school. She graduated at the age of 16 years old uh, through a gifted program, and um, despite my you know, desired not to do it, I still allowed her to go away to college. She didn't go away the first year or even the second year, but towards the end of the second year, at the last moment, I decided I'm going to let you go ahead and live on campus. So she was into her second, like two and a half years into her college journey when I decided to let her live in camp on campus. And it was at that point that she got involved um, with all kinds of different people. You know, I mean, when our kids go away to college, let's face it, you know, they're going to meet people. They're going to experience things that, you know, we may or may not have any control over. But the reality is they will experience. In that experience, she found um, a drug addiction, a drug addiction to a drug called Molly. Uh, it's not the typical pills like most of the kids are doing. It's the powder, the purest form of it that um, some of the kids who have a little bit larger budgets or stipends from their parents usually typically get involved in. Uh, and um, kids. Yeah, I didn't want to say it that way because I wouldn't have called her a rich kid. She was just a little too um No, but she was hanging out with the rich kids. There you go. Right. And so, um, you know, it was costing her about $150 every two days to get high. Wow. And um, she, before she knew it, she got addicted to this drug. And then she found herself um, hanging with people who did whatever they had to do to get the drug. And she was thereby in in in, in entangled in... in um, being an accomplice. Sounds so, like a Patty Hearst story. <laughs> that's what it is, right? <laughs> that's exactly what it is. I forgot about Patty Hearst. Yeah, but she got <laughs> caught up. You know, she got caught up with the wrong crowd. And I'm not saying that she wasn't guilty because without a stretch of the imagination, she was absolutely guilty of her um, uh, charge. She was thereby sentenced with 10 years as a mandatory minimum in the state of Georgia. And in that state, that means that you're supposed to serve 10 years to the door with no good behavior, no way to get out early. So that was a, a blow to us, to say the least. Uh, it was her first time offending anything ever in life. She didn't even get in trouble in school. So for this, this was a complete blow against the family, a blow to me as a mother, uh, just a blow to her in general. And we do believe she was over-sentenced. So that was kind of her journey. Mm. Wow. So how did you deal with the, what did I do wrong, uh, the guilt and all the things that a parent goes through when their kid either goes to jail or uh, is on drugs or, you know, gets pregnant early? I mean, you know, it, it's it's got to be my fault. How did I how did I screw up? I mean, did you go through any of that? Absolutely. That was the <laughs> very first question when I got the call and she says, Mom, I'm in jail. All I could say was, what? what? What did I do wrong? I didn't even say, are you okay? Is there, what did you do? All I could think about is what did I do wrong? And I, I beat myself up over that for years because I was like, why was that the first thought that I had? You know, versus um, I thought of, you know, well, what happened? Are you hurt? Are you okay? Or, I mean, mm. those were secondary thoughts. So the reality to my, you know, to, to me was, is that 
um, you know, as a caregiver, you know, you want to pr- provide and protect your children. Mm-hmm. So when they're in a position where you can't fix it or anything like that, you're going to automatically go into a state of guilt and shame and, yeah. you know, defense and anything else that you can. And how I dealt with it was awful the first two years. Mm-hmm. I stayed in hiding. I didn't tell a soul. Um, I pretended like nothing was happening. Um, you were going through oh, all the, the stages of grief, denial, uh, anger, uh, bargaining. How can I get out of this? Uh, depression. Uh, and it took you a while to get to acceptance, didn't it? It did. It did. When I got, you know, when I got to acceptance was when I realized that God had a calling on my life. That's when I realized mm. I could no longer sit in a seat of pity or in a oh, woes me or a victim mentality, but that I had to rise up as a warrior somehow to not only heal myself and pull myself through, but to be strong enough to be there for my daughter. Yeah, it gives that scripture a whole new meaning that all things work together for good to them that serve him and are called according to his purpose. Uh, if you had to do it all over again, what would you have done differently? Or, or would you have done nothing differently because this is... This is uh, the cards you were dealt, and this is how you were able to grow and become the person. Which which way are you going on that? <laughs> Can I say both? Because honestly, sure. I know after I went through all of the woulda, shoulda, coulda, then I ended up right where you said. You know, this is what this is her life. This is what had to happen as a part of her life. But before I came to that acceptance and that understanding, I would have never allowed her to graduate as early as I did. Um, I would have not allowed her to start college as early as I did. I wouldn't have put so much pressure on her to be uh, to use the wisdom that was given to her to grow up so fast. Um, she must have been I, very bright for you to push her along like that. Yeah, but I pushed too hard. I pushed <laughs> way too hard. Like I pushed so hard that I would say things like, there's nothing that's allowed in this house other than straight A's because my dad did the same thing to me. <laughs> Which you, you brought got, home a right? B in our house. And, oh, uh-huh. yeah. Trust me, I did. Trust me. Uh, you brought a B home in our house and all hell was going to break loose. I mean, you're going to have oh. to do some massive explaining. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. And So, um, yeah. so we, we have something in common. I've told you this before and not everybody knows it, but I have a grandson uh, who is incarcerated. He's uh, 19 or 20 now. And he's uh, autistic, high-functioning, Asperger's. Started hanging around with the wrong kids at uh, 14 and 15, breaking into garages, stealing stuff, started doing drugs, uh, stealing other things. Uh, one time he took a, uh, a family hostage with his two loser friends and, oh, and wow. uh, the helicopters were circling the house and he was screaming out to the police, leave us alone, we have guns in here, we'll kill them all if you don't go, you know, I mean crazy stuff. They had no guns. And uh, in the state of Washington, you know, when they finally got him out and arraigned and all that stuff, a little slap on the wrist and they went home again. I mean, uh, just don't understand the criminal justice system. Uh, in your case, you know, over-punishing and in his case, uh, you know, under-punishing the small things that will lead to larger things. And so uh, on his last thing, uh, they he got out of jail for a probation violation and... and uh, Friends came by, decided to get high, get drunk, stole a car, went into this residential neighborhood, speeding, killed a, a teenager, and now he's serving 10 to 15 uh, for manslaughter. And I get letters from him, hey, Grandpa, you know, I'm doing good, I'm learning this, and I'm, I'm cooking now, I'm sewing my clothes, and I get my degree, and, and you know, you hear about things in prison that you, you get more drugs in prison than out of prison, and I, I hope... Everything he's saying is true, but, but you know, I, I just don't know. Uh, your daughter also wrote you letters, right? She wrote me a ton of letters. Um, in the beginning, the letters that she wrote me were quite disturbing because she told me, you know, all of the things that, that happened there <clears throat> that were ex- just mind-blowing. I couldn't believe half of the things that she told me from um, the, abu- the mental abuse to the physical abuse to just all kinds of things that, w- that, that went on in her prison. I'm surprised that they let that letter go through because I can't even send certain things. You know, the letters are opened up and they're they're read and stuff. And uh, uh, I'm assuming that they also read the letters going out. And so that one must have miraculously gotten through. Well, they can't legally read the mail going out. They oh, can really? read it coming in because they're a ward of the state. 
and the address has to be to the prison in care of that person. So technically speaking, they can open your mail as it comes in. I they see. can't open it going out. I see. Yeah. So um, what did you learn from these uh, letters? And I, I guess she was making some accusations about uh, heroin in the in the prison, and uh, or or maybe that was when you were in there. I'm not sure. That was when I was mixing in. up I my stories. That. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. We want to get um, ahead she, of ourselves. She did tell me though, in the male prison, you know, um, that's where you can get the drugs that the women don't stick together. The men stick together a lot easier and a lot faster uh, than the women. The women tattletale too much, so you couldn't get things like cell phones in and drugs and stuff like that. That's a that is a rumor for women's prisons. So uh, go on with your story. How did it progress, and how did you eventually, you know, get contacted by A and E, and and uh, how did she get out early, and all of that stuff? So after my two years of sulking, uh, I realized that I needed to get some help. So the first thing I did was I went to um, get some he uh, therapy, and in the therapy. I realized that I was suffering from guilt and shame and going through the whole grief cycle, just as you said. And that fascinated me to the point where I felt like, wow, you know, I'm starting to come out on the other side of this. I need to share with people how to come out just like I did, because this felt miraculous to me. It almost felt like I had been so dark and deep and such in a dark place for so long, so depressed, so sad, so victimized that finally I was seeing the light. Finally, I was starting to feel, you know, better about life and I was just starting to see better things. So I immediately started writing blogs about the grief process and about how, um, you know, you can come out of it, still not saying anything about the prison side of thing. And then Somebody called me out, and when they called me out, they said, you know, you have to talk about what's going on because you can help other people, and I started doing that, and as a part of doing that, I decided to open up an organization called Parents with Incarcerated Children because I started to learn multiple things along the way, um, not just how to get over the guilt and shame, but I also learned about who to tell my story to and when to tell my story because mm. everybody can't handle the truth, so you need to know <laughs> when. You know. Yeah. Now you'd look for uh, an organization or a group, support group, but you couldn't find one. I couldn't. That's why there you was kind nobody. of started one. Mm -hmm. There was nobody out there, you know, um, supporting anybody who had a loved one incarcerated. If anything, it was more like watching TV to see what was going on in the jails and prisons and hoping you mm. could figure it out from there. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. So. Um, how did you get involved in this, and and uh, why did A and E contact you, and how did they hear about it? Yeah, I guess you were doing a lot of interviews, huh? I was doing a great amount of interviews. Um, I was also starting to post a lot of videos on social media, you know, about my enlightenments, if you would. And so then I started getting accused uh, by all of the followers. Um, I'd say a lot of them uh, started to accuse me of not really knowing what life in jail or prison was like, because mm -hmm. how would a woman of my statue be able to figure that out? They had done research on me, knew that I was an entrepreneur, owned my own business. Mm -hmm. I'm a TV producer. You, you know, like Martha clients, Stewart. <laughs> right. Like some of the clients that I had, they're like, yeah, right. What do yeah. you know about prison and jail? <laughs> and they said point blank. You know, you should just get up off the, your high horse and stop talking to us until you really know our pain because you had the money to hire a lawyer. We didn't. You mm. you know, they started running all yeah. these things down and they were right. They were right. So I kind of ghosted a little bit from the pages for a while, went into, back into my shell and started saying, God, you know, help me. How am mm. I supposed to get through to these people? And then out the blue sky in my DM comes A&E and they offer me. I'm at that point to have a conversation with them about a TV show that they're working on that um, allows people to go inside and see what things are like. And that was all they said. Well, how many views were you getting on these videos? A couple of hundred. It wasn't like thousands and thousands and thousands really? because people were too ashamed and too embarrassed to even follow the page because they'd be, uh, yeah. they were afraid they'd be found Branded. out. Mm -hmm. So A&E just happened to come across this video that was, wasn't was really well watched, you know, a couple hundred people instead of, you know, a hundred million, uh, and they contacted you and they asked you what? They said, uh, would you be interested in, this is on the phone now, we're having a conversation, mm -hmm. would you be interested in going to jail undercover for six to nine months, <laughs> six to nine months, um, in order to... Um, 
to be a part of a um, experiment where we see how people who are you know who are who are brought into this situation act live and want to um, you know be like and then would you also help us to uncover some of the things that are going on in this jail and I I just said you know well no <laughs> no they said six months huh yeah six to nine months at first oh six to nine months I can't even imagine. I mean, I'm 65 years old, and I always think about, you know, I watch cops a lot on the television, and, and I see, you know, how they grab you, and they throw your shoulder behind your back, and throw you down on the floor. I said, my God, if anyone did that to me, I would, like, be gone. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this body has become so fragile, and, you know, your back, and your knees, yeah. and your ankle. And I said, yeah. I could not survive a day in prison. I can't even imagine uh, that happening to anybody, let alone a beautiful woman like you, and I'm sure oh, you were much younger than me. But uh, let's hold that thought right there because we're going to take a break and then we'll find out what happened next. So we'll be right back. Dave Nassani, the caregiver's caregiver, has just released his sixth book entitled It's My Life Too, Thrive to Stay Alive as a Caregiver. It was specifically written for caregivers who know they should be putting their needs first, but just don't know how. Dave is the sole caregiver to his wife, Charlene, since 1996. He knows firsthand what caregivers are going through because he is one. He now speaks all across the country, offering caregivers his amazing caregiver support package. Even the airlines tell us that in the event of an emergency, to put your oxygen mask on first before you help your child with their mask. They know that those who don't heed their advice often black out, thus becoming unable to help either themselves or their child. And caregivers are exactly the same way. It's my life too. Thrive and stay alive as a caregiver will help caregivers who are neglecting their sleep, diet, and social life and learn to put their needs first. Pick up your copy today or buy one for your special caregiver on sale everywhere and at caregiverdave.com. And we're back on the Caregiver Dave show, and we are with our wonderful guest, A&E star, uh, Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa Johnson. I, I just can't say it. I have to sing it. And uh, I'm Caregiver Dave. I'm Dave Nassani. And we're talking about uh, her amazing story. She did 60 days hard time <laughs> uh, undercover. I, you didn't get any privileges, did you? I mean, they didn't oh. give you a nice, cushy, uh, Tempur-Pedic mattress, and oh, you didn't God. you didn't get the ceramic toilet with the bidet on it. Uh, oh, <laughs> no. I bet Martha Stewart got it, though. I don't know. I should have asked her that. I forgot to ask her that. <laughs> right. But, um, no, 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 no. I got a steel toilet. I think they were, they were so busy trying to make an example out of her, maybe she did not get it. I don't know. Yeah, I get that totally. She, but, she got, you know, she I, got uh, the short end of the stick on that one, but... Go yeah. on. I don't want to. I don't want to water down, you know, other people's time in prison and jail. That was not quote unquote yeah, jail is hard jail. time. Even if you call it Yale, it's still jail. <laughs> right. I wouldn't say it was hard time, you know, compared to others. But for me, it was a hard time because I had never done anything like that. Um, I was. I had no special privileges. Nobody on the staff knew I was in there. Uh, none of the inmates, and. Um, I had to live just like any other inmate on a still bed with a, a, a mattress that was an inch and a half. I saw some half. pictures on your website, and um, you really looked like you belonged there, you know? I mean, you, you played <laughs> the you. part. <laughs> you looked like a bad girl. I had girl. my braids. <laughs> yeah. And so... <laughs> they give me when, powers. That's what I tell everybody. <laughs> so right away, you go in there, and you hear that, that okay, you got to pick a group, you know, because everybody's against each other. At least on the men's side, not sure how it is on the women's side, but I'm assuming they've got a Hispanic group and a black group and Puerto Rican group or whatever. Uh, how did you find your place and did some people reach out to help you and did some people reach out to assault you? All of, the, all of the above, huh? Absolutely all of the above. That's why life is so messed up and so chaotic on the inside. But um, <laughs> It was difficult to pick to make choices because I am a multicultural woman. Uh, my mother's Italian and my father's African American, and it was very difficult to walk in and make a decision because I've never felt like I had to make that decision on who I wanted to be around. So that was number one. They, you know, they do kind of separate out and segregate out based on race, and then sometimes 
uh, culture and sometimes, you know, gangs. So Yeah, which one did you choose? To be honest with you, I didn't make a choice. I kind of decided to float. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I became a floater. You were a free and agent. I, I was a free <laughs> agent, and, and I felt like people had to f tell me what they wanted, and I would kind of figure it out from there. But what happened to me the first three days I was there <laughs> was really unnerving because they give you a jumpsuit, and um, that jumpsuit was like five and sizes too big for me. I was going to say it fits perfectly, right? Yeah, it's so big, like three of us could get into it, okay? And extra, so, extra, extra large, one size fits all. <laughs> right. And um, this had a big gaping hole in the crotch area, too, so that was even more of an exciting, <laughs> you know, wonderful field day I had. So I decided to um, use some commissary money to buy myself some sweatpants and a sweatshirt, which, by the way, on the outside is only about 4 or $5 each, and they charged me $35 for sweatpants. Wow. And $35 for the sweatshirt. Within three days of getting that and having it in my cell, I went to sleep one night. I woke up and they were all, all my clothes were gone. How'd they get them? I must have slept too hard. <laughs> <laughs> you were, you had a cellmate or no? I had two bunkies and these oh, were open they, uh, dorm cells. So we were sitting It was sitting an inside job. <laughs> it was definitely inside job. And I found out about maybe two or three weeks later that there was a pod boss there. And the pod boss wanted to make sure that because I was, she was the oldest one there. And it looked like I probably would be next in line as far as age. She wanted to make sure that none of the girls would get the strange idea to kind of follow me or follow my lead. So she set the tone to make sure that, that I, I knew that there was a boss inside. Boss lady. Wow. Yeah. That was tough. So, $35. I only had $70 in my commissary account for the whole stay. Wow. <laughs> I was so, so upset. I wanted to fight. So did, did some, did you ever get beat up? I got close about two or three times, not necessarily getting beat up, but I would say about to go into a massive brawl. Um, there was a 19 year old girl in there who just kept rubbing me the wrong way. Mm. And she was a complete um, bully. And she had been in and out for murder, and um, she, you know, was never able to be pinned. Or when she would would be pinned, she'd only do six, seven months. And somebody mm. had money on the outside, they'd always get her out. But she was a mean, hateful bullier, and definitely was she big, bigger than you? Mm -mm, no, but she was strong. just a big mouth. No, no, she was strong. Mm. She put hands on you very quickly. Like we got into a physical little brawl but it wasn't a total fight because they got in and broke it up before the chance got there but i didn't want to i didn't want to be that person i didn't want to be a fighter i just wanted to yeah. you know figure out what was going on on the inside Do a lot of women uh, pump iron in there there's no iron to pump uh because in jails there's no such thing as gyms and stuff like that they send you to this little crazy uh thing called a basketball room which is a joke there's nothing to do in jail you stay in your cells all day long 24 well, hours a day well, seven where are where's all the iron that we see on television the guys are pumping and getting bigger and you know starting that's in prison that's, that's in, in prison. prison so you yeah. weren't in prison you were in jail right like jails county, are different county jail i was in county state a county jail yeah it's a state uh, operated uh, yeah yeah but georgia isn't any place you want to go to jail in the yeah, I was in Indiana on the show. I was in Indiana. Oh, uh, my daughter was chain in Chain gang over there? I don't know. I didn't happen to see anything like that, but I did see that there were a lot of girls in there who were a part of a gang on the outside, the Bloods and the Crips. Really? Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm just trying to see how, how rough it was in there. I know it was rough, but... Uh, it was uh, awful. You give me the chills here. I don't know. Well, let's, let's take it another was break. It, yeah. uh, save, that, save that thought. <laughs> we'll take another break. We'll be right back. One Arm, One Leg, 100 Words, Overcoming Unbelievable Hardships, is about Charlene, a stroke survivor. Back in 1996, Charlene was a healthy, normal, very active 52-year-old woman whose amazing talents resemble that of both a Martha Stewart and a Wonder Woman. But all that changed when she suffered a massive stroke that left her severely speech-impaired and paralyzed on the right side. Who am I? My name is David. I've had the privilege of being Charlene's husband since 1975. We had a wonderful, fairy tale, storybook-like courtship that culminated in our marriage a year later. Charlene had just come out of a marriage where after 10 years, she received two black eyes and a broken nose by her former husband, 
when he came home high on speed. Charlene believed in no second chances of any kind for abuse, so she left. Finding herself all alone in the world with her five and ten-year-old daughters Cynthia Lorraine and Deborah Lynn, she started raising them by herself for the next two years. Then fate brought us all together. After falling in love with Charlene, Cindy, and Debbie, our love then produced Rebecca Elizabeth. We had a wonderful, normal life for the next twenty years. But today, things are very different for everyone. How about the reaction of nine-time Grammy and Dove Award recipient? Godfather of contemporary gospel Christian music, Andre Crouch. Charlene just won't let the promises of God go, and she has not let her circumstances get in the way of her faith. She's not just a survivor, she's more than a conqueror, as the Bible states. You'll be encouraged by her testimony, regardless of what you're going through. Available everywhere. And we're back with Mona Lisa Johnson. And I'm Dave Nassani on the Caregiver Dave Show. So let's uh, let's move on here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, what was it like to be in for 60 days? I mean, did everybody know that you were getting out in 60 days and 40 days and 30 days? Or did, did they think you were in for years? What did they know about you? And what did you tell them you were in for? Because I know <laughs> they ask, right? Oh, absolutely. You get interrogated the minute you walk in the door. <laughs> Um, we had a cover story. All of us had cover stories. Um, you were told when you first came into the jail that you had an option to sign a waiver and be a part of a brand new pod that was just built um, called First Timers. They were filming a documentary. They didn't say, you know, what station or anything like that. They just said you could be a part of it and that you would be filmed 24 hours a day, um, seven days a week, and that there'd be multiple robotic cameras in there as well as camera men that would come camera men and women that would come in and interview. Mm -hmm. So you had to sign, you know, a release and of course they told me to sign that release and I got put into that pod. So nobody knew, you know, that I was undercover. It took them over 30 days before they started to figure it out. Um how they start to figure it out? Because there was because there were other two other undercovers in there with me and I didn't even know they were undercover. So there were two other undercovers with me, and one of they them was have been action. not as good as you because you uh, you kept your cover and they didn't. I kept my cover and everybody else did too, but she almost got us all busted out. Sharia, and that's uh. we we tease her to this day, but it wasn't funny when we were in there. Um, she just had a big mouth. She talked too much, and you know she was <laughs> a um, she was a um, a security. She was guard. the drama queen, huh? Yeah, she was a correctional officer on the outside. Oh, she wasn't even a prisoner. Right, who had, who had just, you know, kind of um, gave up her job maybe nine months before that because she was figuring, like, I can't do this anymore. So she went in to see what it was like on the other side as well. But she talked too much, and she kind of made them wonder yeah. if she was a snitch or if anything like that. And then because she, she kept trying much. to get close to me, yeah. they kind of put two and two together. So did they pay you for this terrible experience? I mean, did you get any compensation monetarily or any other? I oh, did. that's good. That that yeah, kind of helped joke, motivate you because at first they wanted six to nine months. Man, they'd have to give me a lot of money. So you and me both. That I, like, and, you know. and I'm still in therapy over that, by the way. And they <laughs> provided me with therapy for only a year afterwards. I'm like, yeah. that's a lifetime of therapy that you need. So. Yeah, some things are not worth the money, actually. But uh, what did you learn from the experience? I mean, what are you gleaning out of this? Where's the wisdom? I'm so glad you asked that because this is something everybody needs to hear, especially caregivers um, and those who are contemplating becoming a caregiver. You know, I learned that there are three different types of people who go to jail and prison, and that is one who is a person who is completely who has completely done the crime, but they get in, they learn from their mistakes, they are released, they come back into society, they become productive members of society, and they never go back and do this again. What percentage I, is that? It's about 30 to 40 percent. It's higher than you think. Wow. It's a lot higher, a lot higher than you think. And then you have those who are innocent who were absolutely falsely accused and really did not do it. I, I know wow. you hear everybody say, I didn't do it. Yeah, nobody I didn't did it. Do it. Yeah, what no percentage is that? You know, honestly, it's a low percentage, but it, do, it does exist. Uh -huh. And I actually met two people while I was in out of 61 people who were very innocent and were exonerated after the show was over. 
Well, so, you heard so their story, but everyone has a story. Why did you think they were innocent and the others with their bogus stories were not? You know, I really didn't know, to be honest with you. I didn't know if they were innocent or not. I just know that afterwards, when they went to court, they were exonerated. Mm. It was documented. I saw it with my own two eyes. I, I kind of felt something when I was in there. Yeah. You can, you, you know, some of Sincerity. them are so good. Yeah. Some of them are so good, you wouldn't know. You just wouldn't know. And that yeah. leads me to the last person that I learned about. I learned that there are absolute criminals inside that need to be locked away and protected mm. from us, the society. Throw away the key. Um, they, yeah, they never need to come back out again, and they don't need to get more than any other chances. They just need to make jail and prison life their culture, their their home. Do you believe in capital punishment for people like that? I believe everybody has to pay the price for whatever they do. They need to do the time. Um, I do not believe that people should be over-sentenced mm -hmm. for something. I mean, let's no offense, but let's take, for example, our situations. Your son, grandson. Mm -hmm. Um, was involved in a murder, correct? Manslaughter, yeah. Manslaughter, and he got 10 to 15 years. Right. Is that all That's the life it. is worth these days? <laughs> That's 15, it. My daughter. A 15-year-old uh, boy who was killed, you know. Yeah. It used to be people would get life over that, but they got right, 10 right. to 15 years, okay? My daughter was involved in an armed robbery. She did not have any weapon at all. And no one was hurt. And a Louis Vuitton fake purse was hmm. the gift that they got. Uh, and first offense. And she got first offense. And she got 10 years mandatory minimum. 10 to 15 from your side yeah. means he might be able to get out on good behavior. Hers right. was she was supposed to go all the way to the bitter end. Yeah. A lot of inconsistency and subjectiveness in the criminal justice system. Right. Interesting. So why did you start the organization? And, uh, you know, the movement, parents with incarcerated children. I, I started it because I, I started it out of my own pain. I needed a place to go. I couldn't find any place to go. I had no support group, so I decided to do it for myself. And then I felt, why should I be greedy? I should invite others to be a part of this. And how hard was it to find people? I mean, did they flock? Was it hard to find members? There were more secretive members than you could ever imagine. More people DM'd me. Um, than they would ever like or go comment on the pages. Um, uh -huh. I think it's more people in secret still to this day, and my job is to eventually get them to come out into the open. But I've got to work with society first sure. to bring about awareness so that we can restore the empathy on this subject. So coming out of the closet experience. So Absolutely. what what should families know who are going through incarcer incarceration with a loved one? Because I'm sure a lot of people don't think about it until it happens, kind of like caregiving. You know, you don't think about it till it happens, and now it's too late. So what? What? Because uh, it could happen to anybody, right? Your daughter was a straight A student, uh, almost a genius. You know, graduating early and all that stuff. You were one of the most unlikely persons that this could happen to, and there, there it happened. So it's nice that every parent should have in the back of their mind, you know, anything is possible. No guarantees, no promises. So what, what advice could you give them? The first thing I would tell a person, a parent in particular, or even a caregiver with someone who's incarcerated, patience, little butterfly, patience. <laughs> patience, 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 patience. Find That's called long-suffering, I think, is one of the gifts <laughs> of long-suffering. <laughs> <laughs> right, you know, they say, oh, yeah, you're so right. It does feel like long suffering sometimes, but, you know, I would say, you know, be patient with yourself first and foremost and, and allow yourself to feel, allow yourself to experience your emotions that you're going through and then find quickly a way for you to enjoy your healing. We're not going to focus in on the person at first. The advice I give is focus in on you first rebuild you, restore you until you get to a point where you can then turn around and help your loved one. Sometimes you don't have a lot of time to do that. Hence the reason why you need to find our local, my uh, organization and start following it because you can yeah. get through things a lot faster than it took me. <laughs> Listen, we're going to take another break. Uh, i got to pay the bills around here. So we'll be right back. Don't go away. Our featured speaker is a best-selling author, who has written numerous books and articles. He's a speaker, life coach, and host of Dave, the Caregiver's Caregiver radio program. 
He frequently appears on television and radio shows all across the country and has even shared the stage with Suzanne Somers at Harvard. But his most important role is caregiver to his beautiful wife, Charlene, for over 22 years. Please welcome Mr. Dave Nassani! I want to share with you a love story. In a couple of weeks, my wife and I will be celebrating 44 years of being together. My wife, Charlene, and I had a fairy tale, storybook, romance, courtship, and marriage for the first 21 years of our lives together. One day, out of nowhere, my wife has a headache, the headache of her life. She suffered a massive stroke, and it left her severely speech-impaired and paralyzed on the right side. And in that moment, our world turned upside down. I got to tell you, the next two years was like a living hell. I just didn't know what to do. I felt guilty most of the time. I became a caregiver. I didn't even know what a caregiver was. I was experiencing the same problems that other caregivers experienced. If you don't take care of you, I can't take care of her. Well, that's why I wrote the book. Now I can teach other caregivers. I'm living proof that you can thrive as a caregiver. My wife and I travel now all over the world sharing our story. One day, life is gonna call upon you to be the captain of your boat. Heck, you might be saving your own life. Thank you. And we're back with Mona Lisa Johnson. And uh, we're talking about incarceration, parents of incarcerated children. She started a group because one didn't exist, and now she's got more parents than she can handle. And I'm Dave Nassani. This is the Caregiver Dave Show. So let's see. Um, you were telling about what families uh, should go through, um, and what about those of us who have never experienced it? Um, what, what does the word empathy mean to you? Because you were judged a, a little, weren't you? When when they found out that your daughter was in jail, you were starting to feel the judgment, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was. I was. Um, I think that the best way to explain how other people should feel about this is realize this. At one point or another, I am more than sure you made a mistake, right? I am more than sure. Right. I'm sure that you made a mistake uh, in this life and you hoped for another chance. Maybe your mistake was so bad that even you should have been in jail. Right. Maybe even served some time. But unfortunately, the difference between you and maybe my daughter or your grandson or the people listening uh, we're referring to is that they just didn't get caught. That that's the difference. And. With that being the difference, just remember some of the things you went through as a younger person. Remember some of the decisions that you made and try to find it in your heart to have empathy towards those who have done wrong. Now, I am not saying I condone crime. I am not asking you to say, oh, I support a child molester or oh, I support, you know, a stone cold murderer who, you know, has been uh, accused of murder. Um, and then been uh, convicted of murder and has been in and out because they've murdered 10 people. You know, I'm not saying that. I'm saying let's look at the balance of it and let's realize that there are people who deserve another chance. There are people there who, you know, need to be looked at as a productive citizen back into society. They are not outcasts. They are U.S. citizens just like you and I. Right. Well, they brought this uh, woman caught in the very act of adultery, but strangely enough, they didn't have the man, just the woman. And they threw them at Jesus' feet. He says, what should I do? What should we do with this woman? And he started drawing in the sand. He says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. You know, yes. And every one of them walked away because every one of them, uh, some people think that Jesus was writing the names of the prostitutes that they all slept with uh, one by one. <laughs> and, and so that's uh, somebody's opinion. But yeah, uh, we have a habit of um, creating unpardonable sins, you know, whether it be divorce or homosexuality or, or, you know, what about the other sins? Like most of us are guilty of like gluttony or lying or gossip, uh, you know, what's the difference? So yeah, I agree. So empathy is your answer. Just put yourself in the other person's uh, shoes or the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, rebuilding the family unit seems to be high on your list of to-dos. Why is that? 
What's so that's the other part. I mean, first about we, the family unit because families right. seem to be breaking apart these days, especially Absolutely. in the black community, and Absolutely. nobody wants to admit it. No, in all communities now, but more so, like yep. you said, in the black community. But now it's affecting all of us, and the reason why it's affecting all of us is because we're moving away from empathy. We're moving away from you know caring about one another. There's that word again about being our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper. We're moving away from that. And therefore, our families are doing exactly what the word of God said. And it said in the end times, fathers would turn against sons. Sons would turn against fathers, mothers against daughters, daughters against mothers. And there's a reason for that because we've lost our center and our balance where we need to find our God. And we also need to care about one another. So as we rebuild the family unit, for me, it, what I think about and what I try to share with people and encourage people to see is that we we first must start on the inside. You know, you can't worry about Billy Bob down the street or the people across the street until you get what's right in your own home. So let's start working yeah. on rebuilding our own family units. Yeah. How's your daughter doing today? You know, she's, she's been doing out extremely, two years, right? Yeah, she's two years. She's doing extremely good and extremely bad all at the exact same time. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> she just graduated college. It's only been five that's weeks. That's good. Is it good right. news, bad news? Right. She's doing extremely well um, where she's found her creative talents and her gifts and abilities. That's she's good. She's a phenomenal artist. She's a special effects makeup artist. Um, and uh, she doesn't want to work for me, who the, the production company that created yeah. all of this. But she doesn't <laughs> want to work for me. She needs, she's got bigger, better things to do, and it's okay. Um, and at the same time, she's still struggling from, you know, social anxiety. She's still struggling from um, being back in the free world and not knowing how to live outside of a day-to-day -day schedule and allowing herself to be free. You know, she's also, you know, struggling from self-identification. They told her who she was for six years. Yeah. And that, they almost that goes into your subconscious. Hard to get it out. Got to replace it. She's rebuilding her confidence on a day-to-day basis. Is she getting basis. therapy? She she was in the beginning, you know. Now it looks like Mama Mona is the therapist. So and Mama God, Mona, Mama Mona, <laughs> that's an Italian in me. Huh? That's a Mama Mona. Does she Mona. let you uh, be her therapist? <laughs> she does. I mean, you know, she knows that. Um, yeah, but we I listen to strangers more than we listen to our loved ones. She should find somebody who's a stranger who's saying the same thing that you're saying, but you know, it will mean more because it's a stranger. Right? That's a touchy subject with her, but you're 100 yeah. percent right. That's a touchy subject because most most people who come out automatically assume and say that, you know, um, there's no need for uh, me to use go to a psychiatrist or anything like that, because if I do, it's going to be just like when I was on the inside. Um, they're just going to you know, try to give me pills and say that I'm crazy. They're not going to try to really hear me or yeah. help me. So they get ingrained engrafted with that mental process. Yeah, you know, God's got to be a part of the healing process. How close is she to God these days? Not too. Well, then there's room for improvement. And, Absolutely. Uh, and I'm sure that's your prayer, praying that she gets closer to God, because God is the healer. Absolutely. You know, but he, people have to make, that's another thing, yeah. I, another piece of advice I give yeah. to parents. Drugs and no, God. We, you, you can't want it more than they do. <laughs> that, oh, that too. You know, we may raise our children right and as they get older, they may stray, but they will come back. But it's yep. up to them to make the decision to come yep. back. We can't beat our children over the head with it because they will only run. Yep. So you, what's your latest project now? What are you doing now? Oh, here's the happy part. Mm -hmm. I actually decided that A&E didn't do a good enough job for me. Um, they sensationalized yet again the yep. concept of going to jail and prison. And that pissed me off mm. to the point where I said to myself, I got to do something about this. So I thought, okay, you own a production company, you have a recording studio, you have a sound stage, you have cameramen, you have a video <laughs> suite. Why don't you create your own show? Hello. So I attempted <laughs> to do it and I tried to cast everybody else as the host. I tried uh -huh. my best and that didn't quite work. Nobody liked the show. Nobody was interested in it until <laughs> somebody said, Mona, you should be the host. It makes no sense. You may yeah. be a producer, and you may have been on the back side of the camera, but now it's time for you to come to the front. I did yeah, it. I agree. I agree. 
I was you were so irreplaceable. Shocked. Yes. <laughs> Nobody I sent you so that shocked. memo, huh? <laughs> no, I said, man, it, I I was shocked to see myself on television, and you know, <laughs> it was kind of strange. So I created this show called Prisoner of Hope, and this show is designed to be the light and to be the positive force out there. We call it prison adjacent programming, which means that, you know, we are looking at the families of incarceration and looking at their problems, their their challenges, and then we're trying to bring healing and solutions to them. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, believe it or not, we've run out of time. That was one fast hour. How can we contact you, uh, find out more about Prisoner of Hope or whatever? Well, you can follow me on everything, uh, Facebook, <laughs> Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, Mona Lisa Johnson. If you look me up, you will find me. From on there, YouTube it'll lead you also. on YouTube, YouTube as well. Yeah. Um, you can um, also, it'll lead you to our organization, Parents with Incarcerated Children, who, you know, mm. you can connect to through all of my pages. Yeah. Um, Prisoner of Hope, uh, the show is out it's in pilot format. It's brand new. It's only been like maybe 90 days. Um, it's out in pilot format, and it's on a spaceforcreators.com, a spaceforcreators.com, and that's, that's um, that needs to. We need to prove by getting more people to watch it uh, mm-hmm. that people want to see this prison adjacent programming, uh, more positive programming. And then they'll fund the full series. That's kind of where well, we are. God has his hand on you, and if he wants it, he's going to do it. Uh, and no weapon formed against it will prosper. And so he opens doors no man can close, closes doors no man can open. So I am so happy for you, and I'm so glad you agreed to be on the show. Thank, Thank you, you so much. So grateful that I met you. And, You're welcome, uh, Preacher Dave. <laughs> hey, it takes one to know one. Uh, so thank you again. God bless you. you. And, God bless you. Uh, We'll see you next time. Thank Bye-bye. you. Take care, everybody. You too. Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing.